Welcome to a special series of a Shot in the Arm podcast, sharing the mic with Frontline Aids. As you might be able to guess, I'm not your usual host, Ben Plumley. My name is Christine Steffling, and I'm the Executive Director of Frontline Aids. We're sharing the mic to profile the crucial role of communities around the world in creating a future free from AIDS. Frontline AIDS is a partnership made up of community organizations in more than 100 countries. And together we take local, national, and global action on HIV, on health, and on human rights. We've made a lot of progress over the last 30 years, but we risk losing hard-won gains. We must not lose sight that with the right investments, innovation, and community-led programs, we can end AIDS and improve the health of everyone, no matter where they live or who they are. Find out more about us at www.frontlineaids.org. And now back to Ben. Well, thanks, Christine. And yes, I'm Ben Plumley, and this is the fifth of our series of episodes of a Shot in the Arm podcast where we are sharing the mic with Frontline Aids. In this episode, we're looking at recent developments in global health diplomacy in pandemics, preparation and response, and how communities have been finagling and fighting for a seat at the table. We have just had the World Health Summit in Berlin in October, and negotiations towards a World Bank financial intermediary fund are going on right now away from the limelight. So with COVID, HIV, TB and malaria, and future pandemic threats, we're asking the question, Pandemic's preparation and response. For whom? Well, let me introduce our panellists for today. Lois Chingandu, Director of Evidence and Influence at Frontline AIDS. Christian Acosta, who is the coordinator of the HIV-FM project for the partner of Frontline AIDS in Ecuador, Kimirina. And Ardi Marte, who is the Executive Director of APCASO, based in Thailand. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thank you, Ben. Hi, Ben. Hi, everyone. Hi, Hi, everyone. Well, it's great that we can all be together. This is, I think, one of the the firsts where we've been able to get everyone pretty much from most of the continents around the world. Lois, you are in Cape Town, South Africa, yes? Yes, I'm in Cape Town. How are you, Ben? Ah, doing well, thank you. It's great to see you. I think the last time we saw each other was in Montreal at the International AIDS Conference in July. Yeah, that's a while ago. It's a while ago, but it's great to have you back. Thank um, you. Christian, uh, welcome. You are joining us from Quito in Ecuador, yes? Yes, I'm Quito. And you are Frontline AIDS' partner in Ecuador with Kirimina. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Well, Kirimina is an NGO that works for more than 20 years in the fight against HIV in Ecuador. Um, we have a community services that give access to testing and prep to key population. And in new pandemic times, we also make COVID screening and we get support to our users when it's needed. And your role as the uh, coordinator of the HIV-FM project, could you tell us a little bit about what that involves? Of course. Um, basically, we... We are helping the Ministry of Health to execute all the activities. So our role is make that the Global Fund grant uh, keep going because for several reasons, the Ministry of Health cannot do it by themselves. Well, 
looking forward to learning more about what you're doing and what your sense, particularly from Ecuador, but also for the uh, entire region, is about how pandemics, preparations and responses are going. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, and last, and absolutely not least, we are joined by Adi Mate, who is the executive director of APCASO, um, an organization that has been the foundation stone um, of HIV and then broader infectious disease across the uh, Asia and Pacific region. RT, welcome. And you're joining us tonight from where? Bangkok in Thailand? Yes, Ben, um, Thailand, um, Bangkok. Uh, good evening, everybody from Thailand. Well, it's really great to have you uh, with us, RD. And um, tell us a bit about um, Abcaso. Uh, I've known it for, gosh, 25 years or so. But um, give, us the, give, give us the rundown. What are you guys up to these days? Yep. You mentioning knowing Abcaso 25 years ago, that's quite true. I've just had a meeting with our country partners a few weeks back in Bangkok. Um, after the world opened again, and we were actually saying Abkaso is quite different right now. It's had a long history, and we were reflecting how when we started back in the early 1980s, there wasn't even UNAIDS yet. Um, in, in the Asia-Pacific region, there weren't yet key population networks. There wasn't yet the Global Fund. Uh, and so the world has already changed a lot in the span of years that Abkaso has existed. You might you probably know Ben Abcaso as an HIV uh, service organization network. The Asia-Pacific, in a way, secretariat of the International Council of AIDS Service Organizations. But we have had several series of reflections as an organization, particularly beginning 2015, when I was newly minted as the executive director. There were a lot of transitions within Abcaso moving our office from Kuala Lumpur to Bangkok. And then we were also reflecting because our foot has always been, um, our vision has been ending HIV uh, epidemic. And then we reflected with all the change that's happening in the world, all the other networks that have started to exist. Uh, we were beginning to ask about our relevance and we asked the question like, okay, tomorrow if we find the cure for HIV, then does that mean that we you know, are, are able to say, you know, this is the success? That we wanted to see and our answer was no because if you still have the same you know human rights barriers and experience and violations for people then an end to hiv doesn't mean anything or finding the cure to hiv doesn't mean anything and that made us pivot uh i say it's brave it's a bit crazy as well it's a bit, bit daunting uh, we actually um elevated our vision to socially just and inclusive societies that promote, protect, and respect the rights of the most vulnerable and marginalized communities. And I think that fits more uh, the mandate that we've been, we've been receiving from our country partners, uh, as well as also like being responsive to the needs uh, of the world and of the region. And I think that that is an experience that so many of us in the movement have had, um, looking at how we broaden our um, our our scope, understanding that, you know, these sort of global health silos are probably not fit for purpose in this new era. Um, and I guess that gets us very nicely, and thank you, RD, into the topic of conversation, which is pandemics, preparation and response. And this is a conversation, um, Lois, you and I have wanted to have for a while. 
you coined the phrase pandemics, preparation and response for whom? And um, I guess the big question that I would have for you kicking us off is the extent to which you think, you know, we're ready for this. Uh, we've we've just had the global fund replenishment, which meh, sort of, kind of, was um, a success, depending on who you talk to. We've just had the World Health Summit. We've got the G20 coming up in Indonesia, and then we've got the World Bank FIF. And so I guess, what does the landscape look to you as we enter the final months of 2022? Yeah, unfortunately, I wish I could say the landscape is good news. Um, the reality is that it's not. And I asked that question, pandemic preparedness, um, for who? Because when I was looking at the players who are taking an active participation in the different platforms, I was not seeing the faces that I expected to see. So when I think of where we are at the moment, um, we are getting exactly to three years since we had the first COVID case. And what we are now seeing is what we were afraid of, uh, the, the devastating impact of COVID, particularly its impact on HIV. The UNAIDS report has made this very clear to us. It is specifically mentioned how prevention and treatment are faltering in many, many of the countries. So we are not making progress and we are seeing new infections of HIV. And all that is happening in a context and in a world where there are so many other political changes and turmoils that are going on. And we, the, the recent global fund replenishment is a clear indication, again, affirming our fears of money moving away from HIV into other areas. So yeah, I wish I could say we are entering in this in this space in a in a positive uh, feeling, but unfortunately, it's not. Things are not really looking as good as we expected. Um, and uh, I, I guess we will come on to the strategies that we need to adopt to to address that. These are very strange times, aren't they, all over the world? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Christian, not least for you with, uh, you were describing as we were preparing for the uh, recording that, you know, there is some um, social unrest happening in Ecuador at the moment between um, uh, drug gangs and the government. Um, but I, I, Christian, I guess, could you just tell us how you see the countries um, Ecuador's, but also the region, South America and, and Latin America more broadly, how it has been at the table with the pandemic's response and preparation work. Because at the 38,000 foot level from here in Sacramento, and often you hear it in Geneva as well, is that the, you know, the, the, the continent is not um, thought of and, and not fully, in, um, fully reflected in conversations um, in global health diplomacy around pandemics. So just what is your take on what's going on? Uh, well, I believe that the main problem in Lac region is the dishonesty everywhere. For example, in the beginning of the vaccine for COVID-19, there were a group of people that got access to vaccines for their connection and not for their vulnerability. So it's really important that our region start to understand that we need 
to have a voice on these tables where all the world is talking about preparedness for future pandemics. And to get some kind of balance in what's happening in the regions, this kind of new investment or support, like the PPPR will be, it should focus in the community response. Uh, as we are in the third line when the pandemic response uh, has to be. And also, we need to establish an accountability strategy for this kind of, of funds. And, and, and Christian, just a follow-up question for you. In terms of how communities have responded, um, you know, for much of the 90s and, and 2000s, um, you, you know, Central um, and Southern America were really at the forefront of driving community responses, particularly in the AIDS response. Um, how have communities uh, that you've worked with um, across the region responded to COVID um, and then the sort of the post-COVID environment. Um, how are you all doing? In lockdown, uh, everybody got a complicated situation. For example, the sex workers lost any kind of incomes, especially the groups that work in the streets. So um, they organized themselves to collect food and give them most needed people of these groups. And all the community response was like, understand exactly the needs of this uh, vulnerable population. We have a huge problem now with migrants from Venezuela that are going down to the continent and that are going back again to Venezuela and then try to go north to, to North America. So they have all kinds of needs and COVID was like extremely, extremely uh, complicated for them. So community understood this, all the community, and we respond giving everything. Like we give treatment support, we give food support, we're trying to find some kind of grants to give anything what they need. Um, and Ardi, perhaps I could turn to you. Um, we've got the um, G20 summit coming up in Indonesia and, and just sort of looking at the flow of the major international conferences and events and high-level forums, um, you know, the G20 under Indonesia's um, presidency is going to be looking at the global health architecture, which is a, a terrible name we in the, the sort of global health field have developed to describe uh, both the um, bilateral, <coughs> pardon me, uh, the bilateral, the the um, multilateral, the UN, um, and other systems to respond to HIV and to global health more broadly. Um, uh, what are you hoping is going to come out of uh, that summit? Yeah, Ben, indeed, the theme for the G20 health um, summit this year is strengthened global health architecture. And um, this year, as you said, Indonesia is the one um, uh, leading the process and hosting the process. I am in a meeting right now with global activists that work on TB. Some of them are actually engaging directly in the G20 process, and I have had a chance to ask them uh, in terms of their engagement, what are the emerging um, key asks uh, and advocacy messages that they want uh, to get out of engaging in that process. And they 
told me three three things. One is that they hope that out of G20, um, there would be an outcome or support for ensuring that pandemic uh, prevention, preparedness, and response will bring added value to existing health systems. Um, I mean, to basically strengthen and support more resilient health systems that serve the most marginalized and the most vulnerable, um, particularly to ensure that essential health services are maintained, um, including community-based surveillance for COVID-19 and other epidemics. And then second, a key ask uh, that they want out of the G20 is to for global leaders to leverage mechanisms for COVID vaccine development and rollout um, to also include new and effective vaccines for neglected diseases like TB. We know like the play uh, the world is not an equal playing ground for countries in terms of access to vaccinations. Uh, it still serves the rich and the powerful, um, and we don't know if it's naive uh, to think uh, that. PPPR, if it's done rightly, uh, might be opening possibilities uh, for more equal access to vaccines, not only for new pandemics, but even for, for old ones. And then lastly, uh, I, I think uh, this would find resonance with other civil societies to ensure that at the heart of the uh, outcome of G20 uh, related to PPPR, even engagement and involvement of civil societies and communities is ensured and institutionalized. Um, so that if there is investments and interest and political will coming to PPPR, this would not mean disruptions or deprioritization de de of other health issues, outstanding health issues, like again, for example, TB. I mean, it strikes me for um, Asia and the Pacific that um, it's a sort of a microcosm, if you like, of the of the whole global response and that there's um, inequality and lack of equity um, between the region and other parts of the world, but also within the region. And, and um, you know, just sort of reflecting on the experience that you all had over the last few years, um, you know, how resilient were communities during COVID and indeed sort of coming out of COVID as they um, then had to rebuild or re-engage in the community-driven responses to infectious disease? Yeah, before I answer that question, just also going back to the point about um, inequities and inequalities, it's not only between this region and the countries outside of it or between countries in this region, but even within the countries, uh, the disparity between the huge and uh, between the rich and the poor is so, so wide. And we all know that um, actually, for example, when it comes to HIV, uh, it is the, the, the poorest populations in the region are the ones that are actually the most vulnerable uh, and marginalized even, or the ones that are also most affected by HIV. So there's a direct color, uh, correlation. E even for those that are affected heavily by TB, it's also the poorest. Um, in terms of the resilience of communities, and um, even before I speak to that point again, also uh, a point of how we frame resilience as a positive or a negative, like, do we always have to, I mean, of course, we're happy that communities and countries are resilient, but there's also like this other point of view that resilience means also being happy with the status quo and keeping keep, keeping on bouncing after it, that it doesn't have to be always like um, glorified resilience, uh, because at the end of the day, we do have to have duty bearers, not just relying on the resilience of communities 
and of countries, but doing doing the duties that they're supposed to do. In any case, I think in Asia Pacific, and I, I, I would dare that this is reflected in the other regions as well, um, COVID has really shown how organized communities, organize, uh, communities that are strong, that have received support from the very beginning, that are able to organize uh, out, uh, based on identities, are the ones that are actually being the cornerstone of resilient health systems in the country. We see that when the countries have closed, uh, when there are disruptions in provision of services and of, for example, uh, medicine, uh, it would be, in the case of uh, communities uh, affected or working on HIV, TB, and malaria, they mobilize themselves to make sure that there's you no know, house-to-house access for food, uh, for essential medicine, for counseling, for, for also advice on how to cope with the epidemic. Um, that has been shown from one country in the region to another, despite all the difficulties, the, the, even the, uh, for example, in some countries, uh, arrests that are happening if you leave the house and it's also all geared towards the poor, it's still the communities that are at the end of the day able to reach their own people. Um, and, and yeah. It's make, funny, make it's sort better. of, it, it really, the experience of all the regions really resonates. There's a, there, there's such a commonality. Um, and uh, Lois, I guess that must be just such an interesting thing for uh, frontline aides to um, to sort of weave together uh, the individual stories of um, of your partners, but also the commonalities. Um, but I I wanted to uh, at this point in the conversation, uh, there's no getting away from it in a sense, to go back to the World Health Summit in Berlin. And um, uh, Lois, I, I I was interested to know what frontline aides thought of the conference, what it was hoping to get out of it. Um, and then I thought we might also perhaps touch on some of the things that uh, uh, became top news there that were uh, perhaps not what the organisers had hoped for. But but for frontline aides, why do you, why do these events matter to you? So I think a lot of people, when they hear the term PPPR, their first response is always, oh my God, is that a global health acronym adding to the zillions of acronyms that we already have? But for us, this is a really a vital topic yeah, that virtually everyone has a stake in. Because what we saw with COVID in 2020 was that countries were not ready and the world was not ready. And it, it was clearly demonstrated when you look at the number of people that got infected and the number of people that subsequently died. And what we want to say now is that that should never happen again. And the only way we can make sure this never happens again is for us to prepare and be ready for the pandemic because it is not a question of for, uh, whether it's going to happen or not. It's just a matter of when, as yeah. we already have seen with monkeypox and others. So I want to go back to the, you know, the World Health Summit, um, which, uh, which again opened for us all those things that we talk about, you know, the, the, the inequalities between the South and the North, uh, the rich and the poor, where even when we looked at the lineup at the World Health Summit, who was speaking in the key platforms, 
we didn't see as many communities as we expected. And yet, when I tell everybody, when COVID was hitting the hardest, all the foreigners got onto aeroplanes and they were airlifted out of the country. And the people who remained on the ground dealing with COVID were the communities and the ordinary people. They were there because that is their home and that is their lives. And so when we have a huge um, summit that is talking about pandemic preparedness, and then we don't see community people and we don't see community voices in, the, in many of the platforms and the conversations, it's really a concern and a disappointment. And, you know, we, we, we saw in one, one panel that the Gays Foundation had two people speaking. There were so many pharmaceuticals that were given platforms to speak as if to say, Pre preparing for pandemics is only about, about drugs. It's not just about drugs. There is a lot that goes into managing a pandemic, which the bigger of those roles are played by the community and the community leader, leadership. And so our own interest in the tracking of pandemic preparedness as frontline aids is to see where does the voice of the community matter? When are we going to hear the, the, that the, this is about people and therefore it should be people-centered and who should be making those core decisions about preparation if we don't have the community that are in the room. So I think we're having a few challenges with your, with your, tech, with your technology. Sorry to dive in there. We were doing so well. But Lois... Obviously, this speaks to a broader issue around representation and um, ownership of these events. And um, th there, were, there were two aspects coming out of that summit that I thought are really relevant for us um, to think about as, you know, this being people-centred, this addressing the questions um, of equity and representation. And the first was, of course, as with so many conferences, um, people from the South had difficulty getting into the uh, country, in this case Germany, to actually participate. Um, and it just so happened that one very high-profile case was the interim director of the Africa CDC, who complained of being mistreated by customs. Um, and so that's a high-profile case. But this is not something that that is unique, is it? Um, and, I, you know, I guess it's for, for all three of you to just sort of reflect on, on how you see that. I mean, RT, you have um, a number of conferences and meetings happening in Bangkok at the moment. You, you, you know, you said that uh, since the summer, it's been nonstop. Do you find that delegates um, and participants from other parts of the world have challenges getting into Bangkok? Do they have the same challenges that uh, they have, say, getting into Europe or North America? We feel very much uh, the post-COVID world. I cannot say post-COVID world because COVID is still here. But APCASO as a regional a civil society network organization, one of our roles is convening gatherings, uh, convening um, discussions, convening uh, people to mobilize uh, from all over the region and sometimes also from outside uh, the region globally. Um, it has never been easy for some countries, people, partners from some countries to access 
uh, equally uh, in terms of visa entering countries, but even but even more so after COVID. Um, for example, when we're hosting meeting in the, the home country of Abkhazia, Thailand, um, at one point we needed to bring in um, partners from African continent. There was a lot of restrictions that some of the embassies that used to exist before and consulate have closed down. They have to fly to another country, stay there for a few days. That wasn't true uh, before COVID. Uh, there was also like further restrictions we've been hearing from, for example, some government departments, how they are actually actively discriminating against certain countries because there's a feeling that, you know, people from those countries are not as vaccinated uh, in terms of the general population as other countries. And therefore, they're afraid that they will be bringing, you know, COVID infections in the country and at some point even monkeypox. So it is entirely different. At another point, we hosted another regional convening in another country in the region, and it's the same story. Uh, it's just really felt, uh, and, and there are countries and regions that are getting discriminated more. And, and Christian, I guess, you know, you've been involved in some of the PAHO work. Um, presumably, the documents involved in preparing for those meetings um, are in uh, the languages of the region, Spanish um, and, and Portuguese. But I guess more broadly, have you found it um, difficult um, and, and the communities that you work with, have they found it difficult to participate in, in some of these broader global um, approaches precisely because so much of the preparation is in the uh, lingua franca of the moment, English, um, and, and is that restricting people's access and opportunities to engage? It's very complicated, actually, that everything is in English. I spoke with many colleagues from the region, and the first thing is they don't know anything about the, the pandemic critic or the chief. So I don't have any idea what is Bajo doing, but our region is so different and it's a country situation. So his role changed depends on the political community. We have like really new things uh, going on in the region. Uh, Brazil has the election as this weekend and uh, everything is changing. So I don't know if Patrick taking a main role in the conversation. But what I know is that our government, not only community, our government are not that they don't know anything about the pandemic. That's a that's that's very sad to hear. To put it very mildly, I mean, Lois. I mean, you and I had this conversation when we were in Montreal, which also had a challenge getting people to the conference and a challenge in um, enabling people who weren't able to get to the conference to participate. I mean, we've we've really got to do better. We've got to organize these events, these high-level meetings in countries where people all over the world can get to. And we've also got to make sure that the engagement of communities, of people at the front lines, is really meaningful. Um, do, you, do you feel optimistic that we could do that? What might you want to see as we move forward? 
You know, Ben, I, I'm still struggling to recover from uh, the AIDS conference and the impact that it had on people because I knew so many people who failed to get to that conference. And it was very, very upsetting because uh, they just couldn't get the visas and they had applied on time. And in the end, uh, many of them concluded that this was a, strate a strategy to just not them not get them into that space. And and it's not even just the it's the issue of visas, it's the issue of immigration. There's also the issue of cost, just the cost of getting to a five-day conference. When, when you look from registration costs, when you look at accommodation costs, everything to make it happen. A few years ago, this was not so difficult because donors used to provide the money to support communities to travel to these conferences. Today, with all these funding challenges, many of the donors are not prepared to pay for, for people to get to conferences. So in some cases, people do pay out of pocket. And so if you want to pay out of pocket, it's almost impossible. You can't get there. It's too expensive. And then there's the issue of even if you manage to get there, there are still other barriers. And the key barrier is that of having your voice heard. To get, to get the community people onto panels is a real struggle. If you have not been in the planning committees, which are set years before by whoever or God knows, if you are not in those panels, you will not have community voices in there. And you will see a skew towards whichever country the conference is happening. They will have most of the speakers from, from those countries. So it is very sad. I'm not yet looking forward to another conference, to be, to be honest with you. And I think we need to get to a point where we sit down and reflect on the value of these conferences. You know, who, who, who is benefiting from these conferences? Initially, these were platforms for communities to come together and be part of the strategies, contribute to the plans. Today, if you can't get the communities in those spaces, who is, who is making the decisions? So that's what really concerns me. You know, we sit here in the South waiting for decisions that have made, been made elsewhere on, on things that affect our lives, and that is wrong. And this is not changing. It's getting worse. Yeah. We, we have now reached a point where each time we want a civil society space, we have to fight for it. Why? Why can we not be recognized as, a, as, as, a, as an important player in all these conversations? Why do we not get invitations? We have to see lineups first. We have to see documents first. We have to see white papers first. And then we see that there's no mention of civil society. And then we fight for it. And then eventually we get it. And it's not, for me, it's not acceptable. So one of the areas, um, Lois, that you all have been really active in is making sure that the community was fully engaged in the World Bank uh, Fiduciary Investment Fund, the FIF for Pandemics Preparation and Response. And this was a little bit like getting blood out of a stone. We were going back 30 years or so where communities and civil society were not considered relevant or part of the or, or or in any way part of the solution 
And yet it sort of kind of has ended up, in terms of representation at least, slightly better. So what has gone on there? And and again, I, I, I would ask you to perhaps give us the sort of Cook's tour of just what the thief is and what you're hoping it'll come, it will deliver. So the, the fifth is the Pandemic Preparedness Fund, which was put together to specifically uh, raise uh, resources to pay for pandemic preparedness. And so initially, they were, early on in the discussions, there were lots of discussions around whether do we need a separate fund or should the global funds role be expanded to include pandemic preparedness. In the end, a decision was taken that we need a separate fund because the roles are quite different. And there were lots of fears of diverting the global fund from what it was initially intended for, which is HIV, TB, and malaria. And so we ended up with these uh, two pots of money that uh, are going on. On one hand, we were quite we were we were okay with that. And we because after seeing the devastation of COVID, we knew that it's so crucial that there has to be a fund for pandemic preparedness. The health systems in many of these countries are in shambles and they actually need support to make sure that they are up to they, they are brought up to the level that can re- respond to any new pandemic. But like I was saying earlier, when, when this was set up, we looked to see who is in the strategic committees, who is, who, is, who is making the key decisions. And initially, there was no civil society. And then we wrote to them and asked about that. And I do remember in one of the, the meetings that I was chairing in, um, in, in, in Montreal, and I was chairing a session on this very same topic, and one of the, the people from the key government said, you know, yeah, we do have, we do have a, a, a spot for civil society, but uh, that should not necessarily include any voting powers. And I was just like, what? <laughs> you know, I was even shocked that that was said. But we had to fight to get that. And I'm happy that eventually we did. And one of our own is actually... A, an alternate on the on the on the on the fund board. Olia uh, is one of our staff is a, an alternate board member there, but it didn't just happen. So if we don't fight, it just never happens, and that is where the concern is. And of course, Elisha Dun Elisha Dun Georgiou is is um, from the Global Health Council is also. Um, on the uh, on the board for that, and she is a a friend of Frontline Aids and a friend of this podcast. She was in our our first sharing the mic, but it's it's not just about representation, is it? It's about it's about content and delivery. And sorry, I interrupted you and should uh, let you finish there. Yes, we. I want to pick there that it's not just about representation, and that is so important because in many of these spaces. Remember, we are coming from an HIV background and the language that we speak is quite different from the language of the World Bank and all these spaces. So even in nominating who needs to go and sit there, we as civil society have a responsibility to make sure that we, 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 you know, we recommend or appoint people that we know will be able to engage at the expected level because it's not just about being present. It is about contributing 
It is about being able to challenge where you see that civil society is being disadvantaged. Because one important thing that we know, is, which we saw with COVID, is that you know people left to themselves, they can completely forget about other societies. And we can very much have a, a, a pandemic fund which might never get to a particular country in, in the South or in any other part of the world where it is needed most. So it's very important that we watch how the fund is dispersed. Where is the money get going? Who is getting it? And we also need to be very careful about, normally we set up these funds and then 80% of the money remains in the country where the, the money is being managed. And sometimes we spend $100 to follow up $10 that we have sent to a country. All those things, we need to pay attention to those things. It feels like we're going backwards, doesn't it? I mean, it feels like we're going to a, uh, a, a sort of a pre-UNAIDS, early 1990s approach to development, which was very north-heavy and, and really didn't involve the people who were most effective most affected. And, you know, RD, Christian, I would love to get your thoughts on this. Um, you know, so another fund, um, another mechanism, is this good news or is this yet more bureaucracy that you in um, uh, South America and in Asia and the Pacific are going to have to navigate? What are your thoughts on it? Um, Christian, do you want to go first? Yes. Uh, I see a backward in public health. First, what we used to think as mothers, we saw that in the pandemic, in COVID-19, they got big troubles to respond. And the World Health Authorities didn't have a real thought to help countries to minimize the damage. Plus, we see huge groups giving false information, and that caused many lives. But communities' response get where it needs to get. So if any initiative forgets a role, it will be a disaster. If all these initiatives, the IMB, the FIF, PPPR, don't have a moralistic vision in the next pandemic, we may have more death tolls than what we saw in COVID. And RD, I mean, your sense of the of the thief and these new investment mechanisms, and and I'm so interested in the view from Asia Pacific, given that you, you know. Um, particularly for future pandemic threats, you, you know, a lot of the um, viruses um, and um, interactions between uh, animals and hum humans that we see in the so-called One Health um, uh, description of, uh, of, of the way globalization is going, that, you know, you're really going to be on the front line here. And, and I just wonder, are all these mechanisms going to help you or are they going to hinder you? I guess it plays out to be seen, right? Um, the, the frustrating thing really is what we've been hearing from the other persons in the panel, um, which is that it's nothing new, like the approaches of what would be effective responses when it comes to health, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to development. Uh, evidence has shown us and experience has shown us communities and civil society have to be at the center. Um, the experience with HIV have shown that the experience with sexual and reproductive health and rights has shown that. But yet, again and again, when there's something new that comes up, when there's new, when there's a new framework, when there's a new financing body, it's as if we have to prove again how and why 
um, communities need to be at decision making at an institutionalized level um, that it takes away from the other discussions that it that needs to happen like we need to keep focusing on the process um, given that that's the role of activists that needs to happen uh, constantly but it really gets frustrating um, in terms of how we would see and we would um, in, in terms of the fifth uh i i think the question at the end of the day is that i mean we know that as it's beginning it's skewed against you know the already disadvantaged populations in terms of access to decision making in terms of representation and so on and so forth but at the end of the day uh if the fifth is just going to privilege if it would be used as a mechanism to privilege the already privileged countries and communities then it wouldn't do us any well what we want to see at the end of the day is the fifth and pandemic treaties actually um, shortening, how they call that, uh, reducing the gap uh, mm. of inequities uh, that needs to happen in a more just world. Um, will, we, will we do that? I think all of the indications at the moment are quite scary. Again, it's a constant battle. And what's frustrating is that we shouldn't even have to battle for these things. If people wanted an effective mechanism, this should be essential, this should be the norm, this should be the normative practice. It's just foolish and I think like um, self, how do you call this, um, uh, sabotaging, mm. <laughs> not considering um, all these considerations in place as, as fundamental principles. Yeah. It's you not said science, right? Yeah. yeah. You said something there, that the privileged countries get privileged access and hey-ho, that brings us right back to COVID and the uh, availability of vaccines. Well, not just vaccines, um, PPE and diagnostic tests as well, where we saw um, the kind of um, health nationalism, health populism, that frankly, in the HIV field, we thought we had been able to at least change the direction of. And I, and I, I, I guess... Um, it, it's something for all of you to just sort of reflect on this health nationalism. We talked about vaccine nationalism, but it is broader than that. And, you know, we really didn't act on the no one is safe until everybody is safe mantra. And Lois, maybe I could kick off with you. Where do we stand now? What did we get wrong and what does the what does the climate look like for for pandemics preparation and response? You know, because I from the time we saw that vaccine nationalism, I became part of the People's Vaccine Alliance, where we were we we really fought uh, to stop that vaccine nationalism, to pushing people to move towards uh, you know no one is safe until we are all safe. Um. Even as I sit here, if you ask me uh, when it comes to pandemic preparedness, am I going to see different behavior? I'm not convinced that the behavior is going to be different. I think um, the, the, the selfishness in nature of if there's a small pot of money, the bulk of it will go to the rich countries. I think we are going to see that again, unless we, we as civil society really prepare ourselves to make sure that this doesn't happen again so that we are our advocacy is not trailing behind our advocacy needs to be proactive 
as the fund is being set up right now, we need to see where is the money going to go? Where is the bulk of the money going to go? And what is the distribution process of this money? Is it going to be distributed elsewhere first before it gets to the poorest countries? So being part, this is why we fought so hard to be part of the, where the to be at the table where these conversations are happening. Because sitting at the end tail, normally you doesn't really do much. So Frontline Aid as a, as a partner, as a global partnership, we really have to be ready and prepare our partners. And we've been doing that and pulling our partners to make sure that they are in these conversations where pandemic preparedness is being discussed, especially around the issue of the funding, because that is where the inequalities begin. They begin when there are resources. And, and that is where we need to make sure that it should never happen again. And, you know, each of us need to keep re re repeating this. What happened with COVID should never be allowed to happen again. Where we started, started divide, dividing the, the nations by the haves and the not don't haves. And yet, ultimately, we did realize that anybody could die rich or poor, you know. So do we do not want to see a next pandemic where this behavior happens again. And for me, what has been so frustrating about this is not only from a regional um, perspective, but from a public versus private sector and civil society view, this is in the interests of all of us. And, and I've been really hoping to see um, an articulation from the business community about why um, solidarity makes sense, both from a moral and ethical point of view, as Christian was referring to, but also, frankly, from protecting customers and protecting employees' perspective. And that's why it was so interesting to me to see coming out of Berlin comments from people like Peter Piot, um, from um, uh, some of the um, other European leaders, um, and, and of course from the African and Asian leaders, that we needed to really invest in local manufacture of vaccines so that we're prepared. Um, and, and, and I guess, you know, Christian, from, from your perspective, um, you know, you, you look at how pandemics preparation for the region, for South America, is going ahead now. And, and I, I just wonder, what's your sense of the, uh, the sort of regional bodies, um, uh, PAHO, uh, the um, uh, Inter-American Bank, um, other institutions? You know, how, is, how are they really stepping up and are they equipped to play the kind of role that you see them needing to do? Well, I think we really need a game changer. Um, I don't know if PAHO or our self-governments need to understand the importance of this uh, pandemic treaty and the, and the fund, but the biggest wrong was use a pandemic as a political platform, especially for our region. If you check the timelines, you could see how everything was used in a political way. And of course, there were a lot of money on the table, but there won't be 
any health system that could respond if we don't understand that the importance of the community in every single role. Surveillance, screening, peer education, vaccines, treatment, any role. The community has to be like the center of this. And I think our region is not understanding. I, I, I don't see in any regions, but our region is really behind others because our government, they don't understand anything about this. They don't understand about the treaty. They don't understand the importance of being prepared for new pandemics. So I really hope that PAC will start taking a technical role and help our governments to get on the table. Um, and RD, coming back to you around the G20 meeting uh, coming up in Indonesia, do you see that as uh, an opportunity to uh, invigorate, perhaps reinvigorate the region's response? And again, are the institutions there like ASEAN and, and, and others, are they up for it uh, and um, prepared to engage and support communities in the way that you've articulated? That's making me think um, in terms of ASEAN, there's also SARC for Southeast Asia, for South Asia region. They haven't really demonstrated, I don't think, leadership when it comes to social issues, uh, but more in terms of social economic uh, cooperation. Um, and they didn't ever, or at least in my knowledge, haven't ever demonstrated progressiveness as a region in terms of issues on health, in terms of issues on human rights, the tendency has always been on the side of preserving status quo um, or uh, not serving the most marginalized. So I'm not so hope hopeful. Um, in terms of civil society engagement on in these spaces, it's also been fraught and the spaces have been closing more and more over the recent years. In terms of the G20, um, again, what, what, what would it bring us? Um, there are some players from the Asia-Pacific region that are also engaging or are members of the G20, and we're hopeful that they would be able to fight for the interest of the region or at least countries in the region or uh, fight for the interest uh, outside of the countries that are, for example, controlling the prices of drugs and medicines and vaccination trends. Uh, we're still going to see if that happens, and we're hoping that um, there wouldn't be bargaining chips, uh, human rights of people, uh, rights to affordable medicines wouldn't be used as bargaining chips for other discussions that are related to the economy. Um, yeah, but I, I really, it is quite a depressing picture as we started <laughs> the, the discussion with. Well, which is a great way for us to sort of come to the top of the hour. I mean, one of the great things about the HIV response was our resilience, our ability in the face of almost insurmountable challenges to find a way forward, uh, both in terms of the science, but also in terms of the access. And Lois, maybe I can start with you first. Give me a positive sense of what... Um, a pandemic's preparation response could really look like? So in my dreaming moments, um, 
And an ideal pandemic preparedness response starts at the grassroots level. That is where you start by asking the communities, if you ever needed to deal with a pandemic like COVID, what would you need? And then go up the ladder and go next to, to, to governments and identify what those needs are and then come to the global level. And then with those needs, you then start creating structures to respond to those needs. That way, we become truly sure that we, whatever we are designing at the global level, we are responding to needs that have been identified at the community level. And when we are costing, we are costing things that we know that these are the needs that are required. When we start with the, the money, the problem for me is that eventually everybody shifts and starts to focus on the money. And sometimes by the time the money comes, no one is even sure what the priorities are. And then we start by priorities which are not necessarily the community priorities. So in, in those moments when I am hoping that we do the right thing, the right thing is to start from the bottom up and then come back downwards with the resources to respond to each of those levels. So when I sit where I'm sitting in Africa at the moment, and I've tried to listen to communities, to uh, civil society, I don't hear them speaking the same language that mm. I'm hearing at the global level. And that worries me because it tells me that the conversations are not connected. And what the global level is discussing has not necessarily originated from the bottom. Because by now we should be having a local terminology for pandemic preparedness. We don't have it because it's not here yet. And, and you know. So I think, Lois, you've given us much food for thought about how we regroup, rethink and invigorate our responses. One of the things that's so key for those of us fighting existing and new pandemics is resilience, is our own resilience. And I guess to wrap up this show, um, I would like to ask you all, what is keeping you sane at the moment? We've talked about some really meaty subjects, some really important and difficult challenges. But at the end of the day, what's keeping you sane? What's keeping you... Um, uh, keeping you interested and uh, engaged. And, and and Christian, can I start with you? Um, are, are you binge watching anything? Are you reading anything or listening to um, uh, new music? Well, I guess, I don't know, watching nonsense TV shows, laugh a little with them, read some books, or yeah, listen music, of course. Uh, and Adi, what's what's catching your attention at the moment? I think for me, two things. Uh, the first one are dog videos. <laughs> um, dogs being cute, dogs being pampered. And I think there's a lot of that that happened during the lockdowns. And the, the second thing is I couldn't help, like despite the frustrations and the challenges and all the things that make us mad, 
when I engage and work with country level partners who are the ones really doing doing the bulk of the work um, in very limited resources, even in terms of their own salaries, but still, you know, having that grit and that strength and that courage and also keeping positive uh, and keeping to want the fight. It doesn't give you any space to complain because if they are um, saying that they will still be there and they would do it for their communities, then our role is to be behind them. Um, I think, yeah, that's a blessing. And, and and a big shout out to to dog videos and um uh particularly one close to a shot in the arm podcasts um uh heart crazy eddie the pug uh who can be found on instagram and um has some has some uh, ridiculous moments but lois last words to you how are you keeping sane what's keeping you occupied at the moment outside of all of this it's community stories. I I like to watch community stories. I like to watch community videos because I'm always amazed by the resilience of the community. And sometimes I'm also amazed by how the community, some their moments, they just show us that they don't really care what we are doing. You know, they are taking care of themselves. When you see the amazing things, that they do without money, I'm always really blown away. And the the other day I listened to a powerful um, documentary where a couple who lived in a in a one-room house took in a young person who was homeless when they already had six children. Oh. And they said this homeless person was sleeping on a sofa and their six children were sleeping on the floor. And they and the message they were giving was that you don't have to have to make a difference. With the, whatever we had, we shared with this person. And, you know, they were doing this documentary because this young man they sheltered ended up very a famous singer and was doing so well. And they went back to look at where he started where, and how this family took him in. And when I reflect on those things, I'm always like, oh, my God. I'm always surprised how, we, you know, we think people need million dollars to make a difference. No. And community people are quite resilient. And, and when I see those and listen to those documentaries, I listen to, to a lot of documentaries like that. I just feel so inspired and and I think it's the reason why I keep doing what I'm doing, because I always say I am privileged. I sit at the global level. I sit where these decisions are being made and I come with this experience. It must make a difference. And yeah, from there, I just feel stronger and want to do more. Yeah, I brilliantly put, Lois, and I think that is the secret source for us working in mobilizing the community response. It's a resource and investment from the people themselves that is such an uh, an inspiration to us to, to do the work. Uh, it's something that the uh, national donor budgets or the foundations with their resources, it's something they don't have that, that we do have. And it's another reaffirmation of why we should be at the table. Well, I, I should also just say um, I'm 
for those of you who are watching this um, on YouTube or through our uh, uh, website, you may have seen me waving my hands a little bit more than I usually do. Um, and that's, of course, because I'm so passionate about the conversation, but it's also because what's keeping me occupied as well just right now now is a fly that has somehow managed to get into the studio and is doing sort of like kamikaze attacks on my head. So I apologise to everyone <laughs> and I thank the fly for joining the conversation. The power of tiny things, Ben. Yes, the power of tiny things, exactly. Well, look, we've reached the top of the hour. This has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. It's been tough, but um, with people like you, Lois, RD, Christian, I'm really confident that just as we did with the um, middle days of the HIV response, we can force the decision makers at least bend their will somewhat to um, reflect the needs of the people most affected and build a response that is really fit for purpose for the 21st century. Um, so with that, um, Lois, RD, Christian, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing the mic with us. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks to our panelists. Thanks to Eric Espera, our director and producer from Newsdoc Media. And thanks to the team at Frontline Aids, including Ali Liu, Libby Vandenbosch, Susanna Fisher-Murray, Finola Murphy, and a particular shout out to Olin McFadden, who helped put the content of this particular episode together. And finally, a great thanks to you. Have a wonderful week and a safe week, everyone.